Let's preach it. By so doing, please turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. I'll be reading Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Blessed is the reading of God's holy and fallible scripture to our hearts, to our encouragement, to our hope, to our waiting in Jesus' name. Father, help me just re-say this text over the next 40 minutes. Help all of us look at it with our own eyes and see it and believe. And so to that end, we're desperate for the work of your Holy Spirit in us. So that our hearts would leap at this which is worthy to leap at. To the glory of your Son, our King and Sovereign over our lives. Amen. Jesus told a parable in Luke 12. The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And I will store all my grain in my goods, and I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus said, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or in other words, picture yourself having a, a vision and a goal of the career of your choice and it all works out and you get to the top. Or maybe your goal was that worthy goal of a marriage and a good marriage and you've attained it 
and a family and children and grandchildren and a paid off home and a, a cabin in the mountains to go to any time you want. But all of that without a relationship with Jesus Christ because you do not know verse 13 of our text. Jesus is waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And so you die and you knock on the door of heaven and say, may I come in? And Jesus says to you, I never knew you. Depart from me. There's one scenario. And then there's another scenario that goes something like Johnny Erickson Tata's life who when she was 17 years old in a diving accident snapped the vertebrae up in her neck and has been a quadriplegic ever since, paralyzed from the neck down over the last 56 years on a journey of dependence on others and the humiliation of it and doctors and pain and an extreme limitation, but along with a pursuit of her Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and her ministries of helping other people with wheelchairs, and her ministry to women in her preaching, in her teaching, in her exhortation, in her books, in her singing, and say, look to the King. In other words, follow me. I'm waiting. And waiting until that great day. In other words, like Johnny, your hope is in Jesus Christ who went to the cross. And then from the cross to the throne, as our text says. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. The Christian life is a life of tension. It is a life of valleys and mountain peaks of pain and deteriorating bodies that are wasting away or disease kills it pretty quickly. And the loss of loved ones and fears. But it is a life of deep joy through and in all of that in the waiting room of faith. Okay, last week we looked through that big portion right before this, verses 1 to 10 of Hebrews chapter 10. And what we saw was that it is impossible for the blood 
of bulls and goats to take away sins. And therefore, Christ Jesus came into the world and took upon Himself true humanity in order that by God's will, verse 10, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And now... We pick up in the next verse, 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. And so the priest, they stand, it's in the perfect tense of the verb, which means this, this, it's, it's been going on and it continues to go on and they continue to offer again and again the same sacrifices and they constantly amount to nothing when it comes to taking away sins. And then contrasted with this is verse 12. The completed work of Jesus. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, then something else happened. Then he sat down at the right hand of God. No repetition needed because he alone was the once for all perfect substitute, sacrificial lamb, bearing the judgment of God on behalf of sinners. He absorbed every righteous blow of divine wrath so that those who believe would have a new, perfect, righteous standing with God. He sat down at God's right hand. That sitting, the right hand of God, means at least three things in this context. First, His sitting means... The work of His offering that He did is done. It does not need to ever happen again. He's not like the priest in the verse before who needs daily and yearly to continually offer sacrifices. His sacrifice was perfect and thus perfectly complete. Secondly, his sitting at the right hand of God means God has fully accepted his sacrifice for sins. He is utterly satisfied forever of what he did for others. And thirdly, it means Jesus sits at the right hand of God. That language, the right hand, is kingly language. Ruling. Sovereign. 
reigning language. And so it means that the suffering lamb is the sovereign ruler. And ultimately, over all his enemies. They will be defeated. And that's what verse 13 stresses. Seated, seated at the right hand of God, waiting. He's waiting from, from that time until another time's coming. Until all his enemies, until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. In other words, everything that Jesus died to accomplish will be accomplished. No enemy can hinder his victorious work on behalf of his people. Not Satan or demons or quadriplegia or disease or financial collapse or impending death. None of it will be victorious. All, all His enemies will fall before the reigning King of Heaven. Now, the writer, he's quoting again Psalm 110 like he quoted back in chapter 1 verse 13 when he said, and to which of the angels has he ever said? And his whole point is, no, he only said this to Jesus. To which of the angels did he ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so, the eternal reign is king and his eternal mediation is high priest, which Psalm 110 is about both of those. He's clearly saying now has its fulfillment in Jesus the Messiah. He's the one, the pre-existent Son, becoming truly human in order to suffer and offer Himself as the propitiatory sacrifice. And then He rose. He was resurrected out of human death and mortality to human immortality, trans, transformed humanity forever. And then he ascended and was seated. Enthroned is the sovereign, the king over the universe. How long, though? Must Jesus wait? How long must He wait until the consummation of His redemptive work? The completion of what He purchased? And the answer is right there in verse 13. Waiting From that time of sitting, 
until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. That word until pictures a triumphal day coming, a day of judgment that will take place on Christ's enemies, all the wicked, and where Jesus will be glorified in His people at that final defeat of all the enemies of Jesus, of God. That reality right there is not peripheral to Christianity. It's not peripheral to the gospel. It's one of the central tenets of what the good news of Jesus is about. It's not just here in our verse. It's everywhere. For instance, in Romans 14, verses 10 and 11, the Apostle Paul writes, We will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, and then he quotes Isaiah, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. That day's coming. The Apostle Peter writes in 2 Peter 2.9, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, and He knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Concerning the fallen angels, Jude says in verse 6, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, He has kept in eternal chains, under gloomy darkness, until, until the judgment of the great day. The Apostle John says of Jesus, his friend, that on that future triumphal day in Revelation 19, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on His robe and on His thigh, He has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. We are awaiting an all-powerful king who triumphs over his enemies forever. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. That's our passage. Let's contemplate it.
He's been clear. Christ came, lived amongst us as one of us, suffered and died and rose from the dead. And then in His ascension, sat down to reign, to rule. Okay, first, wait a minute. Does that mean that the Son, the second person of the Trinity, was not sovereign or, or as king or ruling before His being installed at the right hand of God after His resurrection? No, it doesn't mean that. We know clearly from John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, the Logos, was God. He was the one through whom and by whom all things were made, and without Him was not anything made, created. And He, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. He's the Divine One, the second person of the Trinity. And remember how this letter to Hebrews that we are working through began, but in these last days He has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also He created the world. He, Christ Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of God's nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. That's who He is. And then the next verse, of course, in the beginning of the letter is, and then, after making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The world was created through and by the eternal Son. He's sovereign. He's been reigning, upholding every molecule, always. This second person of the Trinity, Jesus from Nazareth, has always reigned over the universe in one sense. So, was the opening of His rule and reign at creation or at the ascension to the right hand? Answer is yes. But, but what's different is this, and while we speak of both, because the incarnation and the resurrection of Jesus after his death, it brings in three new, central, glorious elements to his reign. First is this. Since the resurrection, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is now the God-man as King. He has taken human nature to, to His person, which He never had before the angel came to Mary. And so now, he rules not merely as God, the second person, 
but as the resurrected human being. A man. Secondly, as God in true humanity, He has now been publicly and historically, that brings in time, declared to be the Messiah who was promised that one would come from David's loins and sit on his throne, inherit it, and it is a rule, it is a kingdom that is forever and ever and ever. So in other words, before His incarnation, Christ was king, He was ruler over the world and sovereign in a sense, incognito in His divine nature. But now, He's openly declared to all the world as Messiah, as sovereign, as Yahweh, as King, the son of David. Thirdly, now his reign, now his reign and his rule is based on his finished work of redemption through his cross for the forgiveness of sins which means that since in AD 33 he ascended and is seated on the throne the word of the king is the word of the cross his reign right now is primarily a saving reign. Judgment is delayed. That's the text. It's delayed until. So in a very real sense, the reign of Jesus, the God-man, the Messiah, it began in that sense at his resurrection and exaltation to the right hand of God. Forty days after his resurrection and forty days of communion and eating and teaching many, many, many of his disciples, then came his enthronement. The enthronement of the one who came from eternal glory into time and space and physicality and, and a human soul and took upon himself true humanity in order to suffer and die, to forgive the sins of others and to defeat death. Then 40 days after that resurrection, he ascended to the throne with a human nature and a blood-bought new covenant of redemption. We should like sing for a while, then I'll come back and preach the rest. Having said that now, there is a delay until he wraps it up. 
But notice in our text, he is reigning right now. Not, not just when he returns to put all of his enemies under his feet, but right now. Look at the word, until, in verse 13 again. He's sitting at the right hand of God. That language is, again, it's ruling and reigning as king. It's kingdom language. He is sitting, reigning, until. Until all his enemies are subdued. Now to help us even more with that, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And notice that the Apostle Paul and what he says concerning this exact same thing is our text. Starting 1 Corinthians 15 with verse 21, Paul writes, For as by a man, Adam, came death, by a man, Jesus, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits. Then at his coming... Those who belong to Christ. Then, after that, comes the end. When He, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For, do you see, He must reign until... He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But He says the same thing as the Hebrew writer says. Because He gets it from Paul. For, for He must... He must reign until he's put all his enemies on his feet. Verse 25. And it means that Christ is reigning now. He rose. He ascended. He sat down at the right hand of God. His kingdom, in other words, does not. Kingdom, his rule, his kingship, his reigning, being in utter control, does not begin at his second coming. In this sense, it began at His first coming. His second coming, it will be utterly glorious. Paul just told us that, right? In verses 23 and 24 here of 1 Corinthians 15. He just told us, Christ, He's the first fruits, meaning He is the first, and at, to this point, the only human being to have ever been resurrected from the dead. He's the first fruits, that agricultural analogy. The crop's coming in. We, we got some. Look at this. Here's the first fruits. Let's go offer it to the Lord. Christ, He's the first fruits. I mean, there's a crop coming. Christ, the first fruits. But then, 
at His second coming, the harvest. Those who belong to Christ will, just like He was, be raised, resurrected to immortality, human life. Then comes the end when then He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. That's coming. But that future victory against all of His enemies and even over death, it's not the beginning of His reign because verse 25 tells us right here, according to Paul, He reigns now. He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. And that means Jesus is reigning. He's in sovereign control. And He is warring against His enemies. Right now. He's reigning until that final end in it all. This is exactly what Matthew chapter 28 verse 18 says when Jesus stood before His ascension and enthronement and looked at His disciples. You've got to hear this. He's, he's reigning, and this is His point. All authority in heaven and on earth Guys, it's been given to me. Therefore, go. Make disciples of all the nations. I'm reigning. Teach them to observe everything I've taught you. He's saying, I'm the rightful king over all the peoples of the earth. He's triumphed. He's triumphed over the devil, over the powers of darkness that held people back. He did all of that on the cross. And one of the ways, therefore, according to Jesus, that he is reigning is through the preaching of the good news of Jesus and the people can be brought out of darkness and condemnation and be saved and know it now and have Him invade your life and your spirit and your desires in the hearing of the Word. Go! Make disciples. Teach them. Jesus is reigning right now. He's reigning in order to defeat His enemies and to put them under His feet. And this means He is specifically reigning over and in the lives of His people whom He brings to Himself through that preaching of the Gospel. Every believer throughout the ages 
And every one of us in this room, we have enemies of our souls. One is the very nature that we carry with us. The flesh. Sinful dispositions that he has left purposefully with us. Creating bad sinful habits, creating tiredness and shallowness and selfishness and dullness of hearing at times, and temptation and lust. We have enemies, but Christ is enthroned and he's fighting for us because these enemies that are not yet obliterated, they will be. They're not yet totally subdued. They're His enemies too. And He's our King. That's why He goes on to unfold His reign in verse 14 of our text. He's reigning. He must reign until He is on the throne. He is not inactive. He's reigning for by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So notice who the believers are according to the author. Those who are being sanctified. In the Greek, it's a present tense. It's those who are presently, and it, present tense in Greek carries with it not only the present, but a continuous, ongoing action. Those who are presently being sanctified. Now notice that verb, you can hear it in English, just as it is in Greek, it's a passive voice. Meaning the subject of that verb, the ones being sanctified, they're not actively doing the verb. It means that what the verb is, the sanctification, the setting apart, the, the molding, the making holy, is being done by someone else upon them presently. The king. And notice verse 14 begins with the word for. That's what connects it to verse 13. It, that, that's what makes, it's an argument for verse 13. It's, it's his way of saying, verse 14 is the proof that Christ is reigning. It is proved by the reality that there are those in the world who are being sanctified. And Christ Jesus is doing this work until that great future day when all of His enemies will be made a footstool for His feet. 
But he's reigning now. And Jesus' enemies, they're our enemies. You can sum up those enemies in these three large categories we all know as Christians. The world. The flesh. And the devil. The demonic realm. He's working. And he's subduing our enemies under his feet. By sanctifying us. Slowly, but ever so surely. And you will never be fully sanctified or fully made holy in this life. But it will come in the consummation. He's the first fruits. But then, when he comes back for the harvest, I can't imagine it and neither can you. I have only known what it is to be sinful. What is it like to even have a mind and think, and desires to feel without the taint of sin? Don't know. But it's coming. And this means that there is, therefore, for those who are in Christ Jesus, no condemnation. That's been taken care of once and for all on the cross. Made perfect, meaning in God's eyes, before Him. And that means that there is no disease that may come and invade your body. It means that there is no addiction or no demon or no bad habits or no weaknesses or temper and no moodiness and pride and greed and laziness and sexual lusts that Christ does not purpose to work upon and to overcome as an enemy. The enemies of His bride are His enemies. And that's what He's doing. You remember how Paul put it in Ephesians 5? Christ Jesus, He loved the church. And He gave Himself up for her so that He might sanctify her. That's an active voice. And He's the subject. He might do this verb of sanctifying her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that... He might present the bride of Christ, the church, to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she, the church, might be holy and without blemish. Or as our passage says, there's the bride. They're there. They're there today on this earth. It is all of us throughout this globe who are being sanctified. He is now, during this age, before the age to come, this very week, putting all of His enemies 
under his feet. But the completion of that is not until. Until all his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. We should be amazed at God's plan. The goal that the Father has in subjecting all things to his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, is that the Son would use his authority to redeem a people for himself from every tribe, every tongue, every language, every people, every nation, throughout centuries, who knows how long to go. He defeats all his enemies. And specifically, one of the ways that works out in our text is that the king who is enthroned works through the Spirit of God, regenerating people in the hearing of the gospel. And thus, he justifies them, declares them utterly righteous. I perfected that one by their faith. And then, he ongoingly works on them. For by a single offering he has perfected, perfect tense, past tense, ongoing ramifications, he has perfected for all time those people who are presently being sanctified. And that means that like Johnny, Johnny Erickson Tata, sanctification can be hard. Can feel long, can be painful. But what we take in the midst of the veil of tears is Christian, your king right now is sovereignly reigning over everything in your life. He is sanctifying, molding, which hurts sometimes. Everyone who belongs to him. And you know it. That's precisely the meaning of Romans 8.28. For Christian, we know, don't we? That our God, He causes all things happening to work together for the good of those who love Him. Those are the ones who are being sanctified. That is, of those who are being sanctified. That's what he means. But who love him, those who are called according to his purpose. 
So what are you going through? This means that wonderful fruit of the Spirit that we're all so in desperate need of called patience. We have great need of patience. One of our sanctifying helps that, that He gives. He gives Spirit and He gives the Word. And the Word and the Spirit produce needed endurance, patience, hope. So you turn to one of the, the great things that He has given us. The Psalms. The prayer book. And just for an instance, you pray along with David. Psalm 40, verses 1 to 3. You hear it in your own life. But notice here too that during this life there is valleys, but then there's another mountain. All of this before the end and before our own ends called death, where we depart the body and still await the resurrection. During this life, you pray with David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and he heard my cry. Because David was in an extremely low place. You can hear it here. But what happened then? He drew me up from the pit of destruction. Out of the miry bog. And he set my feet upon a rock. Making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth. A song of praise to our God. And many will see. And fear. And they'll put their trust in the Lord. Miry bogs pulls you out. Another deep valley pulls you out. And this goes on until. Until. During that time is this testing, this sanctifying. And the way I put it is this often painfully troubling work of our great King and Savior. But it is not forever. That's the text. It's only until. Till that day, trust Him. I want to close by reading a poem written by a man who, if you know his story, had much internal tormenting pain up and down through his life in the 1700s named William Cowper. And 
as we're passing out communion here in a few minutes, we will be singing this poem. Because the Christian life is a life of painful joy. Not done. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea. and He rides upon the storm. Deep in his dark and hidden minds of never failing skill. He fashions all his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Oh, fearful saints, new courage take. The clouds that you now dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him in His grace. Because behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. God's purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. Yes, the bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan His work in vain. God, you see, is His own interpreter. He will, on that day, make it plain. But for now, He's waiting. He's waiting until His enemies should be made a footstool for his feet as he sanctifies you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you're so good. and We thank you for this gift now together of holding the bread and holding the cup here in a few minutes because it is that cross, that once-for-all sacrifice that purchased this glorious redemption. We thank you for your rule and your reign, our Lord Jesus, over us, your church here, your church throughout the world today.